Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of HashiCast. We have Carl and Caitlin from the HashiCorp education team on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Carl and Caitlin, would you please introduce yourselves to our esteemed HashiCast audience? Yes. Uh, thanks for having us, Rosemary. But my name is Carl Cardenas, and I'm one of the education managers on the HashiCorp education team. My products that fall under my responsibility is console, as well as some of our more open source community focus, such as Nomad, Waypoint, Packer, and Vagrant. And I'm Caitlin Carter. I'm an education architect on the education team here. Um, and I don't have a product focus right now. And so that's been really fun. But previously, I was focused on console education. I'm actually very intrigued. Caitlin, what is an education architect? Yeah, so it's a, a new title for a new role on the team. Uh, it mainly means I don't focus on one particular product. And I, I'm helping... Um, content contributors from around the company contribute content to learn. Um, they do a lot of editing, a lot of technical writing, working with subject matter experts to surface advanced content. So right, like right now I'm working on converting an older blog post for the rack recovery process for Vault into a learn tutorial. So that's the kind of content I work on um, or uh, process. I assume that neither of you studied, you know, education engineering. And I don't know actually if that's even a, a course selection or if that's there's some course curriculum around that. But what are your backgrounds and how did you become part of the HashiCorp education team? I did. I got an instructional design certificate from the local university here. So instructional design is a field of study, and you can get like a, a full four year degree in, or you know, a doctorate. Um, but yeah, there's nothing specifically for technical education. And even with all the instructional design concepts, we have to just play around and see what works for technical education because it's a little bit different. Um, but my background is in psychology, actually. I graduated from the University of Oregon a while ago with a, a bachelor's of science in psychology. And then I went into research at the biomedical engineering department at the local hospital here. And that was actually my first experience maintaining um, all sorts of uh, study equipment. So we had installed sensor networks in the homes of senior citizens to track their movement. So I was like maintaining sensors and, you know, data collection machines. And that was my first experience with uh, databases. So we were using MySQL and then we, we went from like a Windows platform to like a plug PC that which we, we installed, I think Debian on a SIM card or on a like a little memory card, which was like, you're not supposed to do, but it was, it was fun times. And then I transitioned to do uh, tech support at Puppet Labs back in the day. And then from there I got into uh, education and onboarding and, um, technical writing. So I've done that. I've done education for uh, various startups for the last five years. I am just very intrigued by this story, specifically trying to install 
Debian on a SIM card? Because I mean, I guess this this pre- did this predate Raspberry Pis? This was like maybe when they were first coming out and Raspberry Pis were I don't want to say they were too expensive, but this was like government research, right? So it's not like um, and it wasn't a SIM card, so it was like a little memory card. Um, yeah, so it, it was just we ordered a mass amount of like essentially raspberry pies from China, <laughs> directly from China. <laughs> wow. and, uh, and some of them just didn't work, but that was okay because we paid maybe like $15 per one because we were, you know, setting up so many uh, that we couldn't be fancy with raspberry pies. Today I learned. I, I I'm very astonished now. We're gonna we're gonna circle back to that later. But Carl, now I'm curious how in the world you got into education, engineering. Yeah, it's uh, as hopefully people are picking up is that there's no set path to become an education engineer or even get involved. So to give you a little bit of uh, perspective, how random it can be. So I'm I was a college dropout, and I love saying that because my parents cringe every time I say it. Uh, and I went into the military and then after military, I figured, you know, it's probably time to figure out how to read. So I should get back to school, so finished my degree, uh, computer science and got an internship with State Farm. And I spent the past seven years there before joining HashiCorp, doing stuff such as programming COBOL, assembler, doing uh, mainframe networking to UI development to infrastructure automation. And then the past three years before HashiCorp, I was one of the the main cloud architects that stood up the entire public cloud environment for for them. And the way I found my passion into education was that on my own time, I enjoyed writing blogs and teaching people how to figure out stuff. So I would create open source projects, uh, contribute to Medium articles and things like that. Just share quick code snippets. And then in my professional career, I've been fortunate enough to stand up a team a team of developer evangelists, as well as a public cloud onboarding program. So that got me into the education aspect, whether I wanted to or not. And uh, it, I just kind of stumbled upon it. And I think that's kind of what I think might be true for both Caitlin and I is that we stumbled upon it and we realized that, hey, I, I enjoy teaching others. And the fact that I can do it for a living and make a paycheck out of it is, is a win-win. Um, I think we talked about this in your backgrounds, and Carl, you mentioned there's no set path, but how does one become an education engineer? And I mean, in the past, let's say five years, I didn't come across a role that was specifically education engineering. Yeah, there's definitely no set path. I think the the one guiding light for anyone who wants to do education or content development is they want to do it, that they have a passion to do it, they're interested in teaching others. And from there, you know, just practicing that. Um, And I think just understanding how people learn and how you learn, how you best learn and consume content is like how you start to get navigate to that career, just being aware. Um, But then you can do, you know, various side projects or projects at work to like try it out. You know, I had a blog for a long time that I worked on. I did some like how-to articles. Um, you know, you can do a uh, instructional design certificate or some technical writing, um, do webinars, you can do podcasts. Like there's a lot of different things that you can do to start helping people learn to, to kind of build up that skill. And, um, but we don't, you know, we don't 
look for even any previous experience like that on the education team. Our main focus is does someone have a passion for it and kind of like the knack, a natural knack for teaching others. And you can you can tell when you're interviewing someone if they have a natural knack and then we can always teach the other skills later. Yeah, I can't echo enough what Caitlin said. So if you really want to find out if this is a role that you would enjoy doing, literally just start your own technical blogs. Pick a topic that you know pretty well and start writing about it. It doesn't have, it can be any platform. Some of these platforms will even pay you for your articles. So you can make some money while teaching others. And even in your own company, teach, show people like code snippets and do stuff like that. If, but it really goes down to what Caitlin said. If you, if you realize that you actually get joy out of doing this, then chances are this might be a good fit for you. What's interesting about education engineers as a whole is that it's a very, there's not a whole lot of people with that skill set that have a deep technical background, but also enjoy teaching or at least have experience with it. Uh, it's difficult to find those people. So one of the reasons that Caitlin and I wanted to do this podcast is to raise more awareness about the role and help increase the population size of professionals that teach uh, technical content, but uh, you have every opportunity in the world to find out if you would enjoy doing this for a living. So I wonder, is there uh, ever any dog fooding or um, anyone who comes on the education team and is like, hey, I went through this tutorial and you know it wasn't quite addressing some of the knowledge that I was looking for. Let me go and look at the gaps. I'm in a little bit interesting role because I came in as a management role, but one of the things that I'm looking at is as a former consumer of console, I have some ideas on how we can make it a lot better. So there are steps that I'm taking right now to revamp that and uh, try to enhance it to be more, um, to make it easier for practitioners to consume it. But uh, let's say you're brand new to the team. Uh, you know how you do pair programming when you join a, an engineering team? Well, we have the same concept with education engineers there. We do pair writing. So we'll pair an education engineer or a technical writer along with an education engineer to help them understand the process, how to think about the flows of creating, because we have steps to create content. We use design documents to lay out the outline of what it should be, what are the learning objectives, so forth, but to help create the demo application or truly express it, that's actually done as a team. Even in the review process, we all help each other out to come up with the end result. Um, but in terms of dog fooding your own tutorial, I guess that depends on your background. I mean, I guess I will say that for this vault recovery tutorial I'm working on, I'm using one of the other tutorials to set up a vault HA cluster. So like I'm currently using our content to, to help write more content. So I do, I do think we dog food, when, especially when we work cross products. Um, but yeah, like cross said, if someone comes in without any previous experience, we have all the tools and all like the processes in place for them to be effective really quickly so like the the, the design document something i brought in from my instructional design course like way back in the day and we've been using it here and it's just like really helpful for new education years to help them get started interesting what's um this design document or what's the approach for a designing i assume a tutorial yeah, it helps you, like I said, get started. So it's going to help you think about what your main goal is for the tutorial or like the, the blog or whatever piece of content, uh, what the specific goals to reach that main goal and help you do some audience analysis. Think about what tools your 
you know, end user is going to need to use to set it up. Um, and then you can move from there into like an outline. And the, the, the design doc is totally like, you can Google that and you can find them out there. They're very common, um, very common thing for instructional designers to use to, to design curriculum. Um, and I just made a subset of like a very large one because they can be like super big and like take a long time to fill out. But for our team, we wanted something quick because we work quickly. Um, you know, we don't have a week to spend on the design doc. We want to spend maybe an hour or two on that <laughs> before we get moving. So we, we pared ours down a lot after a couple of iterations internally. Hey, one of the real neat things about our team is that we have people with different backgrounds and skill set. And I think we highlighted in the beginning, but uh, Caitlin, for instance, she has a very strong instructional design background and she's really good at helping us think about the writing architecture, how we think about designing the tutorials. And you have other people like me who um, I was only introduced to instructional design as a concept a year ago, so I still have a lot to learn, but I have a very deep technical background. And when I work closely with people like Caitlin on the team and so forth, our overall product is much, much stronger. But um, that's one of the really nice things about having processes in place for creating content, because one thing I realized when I was doing it as a hobby is that I didn't always have processes. It was more of like, hey, this feels right. Let me go with it. And since uh, joining the team and seeing the, the content and structures that Caitlin's created for us, it's that, you know what, this is a much better product in the end. Uh, so I just want to share that. Yeah, I agree. There's some like really neat backgrounds on the team. We have a couple of people who were elementary teachers for a while, and then one who did a, a boot camp, like a go boot camp. We have some developers. We have some like previous ops people. Uh, so it makes for a really fun team as well because you get to share all these interesting things you used to do. And listening to some of the ways that you work uh, on content, build education, plan education material, it's a lot like kind of the the general developer, and I hate to say this, but agile methodology approach, right? Where the thought is like, let's do a super lightweight architectural review. Um, we're not going to go into a 10-page document necessarily on every nuance of the system, but we're going to outline, you know, very in a very lightweight fashion what we're planning to do, how we might design it as an initial thought. Um, and then we'll plan and, and try to iterate on it and build it very quickly. Do you think there are a lot of software development delivery processes that you've adapted to delivering education content? Oh, 100%. I would say that you, you nailed it with what you said. It's the same practices, even agile, even with writing. Um, what's an interesting is that and this is something that we as a team are working and working towards and getting better at, but we, in programming, we use functions as a piece of reusable code. Well, we try to do the same thing with content, whether it be images or paragraphs that we can reuse, we try to strive towards that because a lot of the same principles definitely lend themselves to writing as well. Uh, you, you don't want to repeat yourself in coding. Well, you don't want to repeat yourself when writing either. So, uh, that lends itself. We also, um, I like to almost think of it as uh, writing as code. We have, uh, when we push up our tutorials, because we work in Git, uh, all the stuff we do is written in predominantly Markdown. We use MDX because we have custom components for our platform that we inject sometimes. But even when we submit or push up our code or writing, there are checks happening. So there are 
markdown uh, style checks and all kinds of things that are happening because we want to make sure that we adhere to those practices that, that modern teams are using right now with rapid feedback and doing everything as code that can still be applied to writing. There's another part of this, right? So it's not just the development process, but there's also operationalizing and, and maintaining this content and getting information and insight into what's working and what's not working. Have you been able to iterate or find tools uh, or approaches that help you gain insight into what tutorials are successful, whether or not they could provide additional value? Um, what is it like maintaining a bunch of tutorials when even the products themselves are releasing new subversions, you know, every couple months? To be honest, it's hard. It is really hard because there's so much content to, to like maintain and make sure it's up to date. Um, and I, if anyone out there has like a set process they use that they love, I'd, I'd like to hear about it because I've, I haven't worked anywhere there where it's been the same process. Um, so here, one of our education engineers and I, Danielle and I worked on a kind of a needs analysis where he scripted out, um, built this really nice script that pulled in information from you know, analytics, like how much is this tutorial being viewed and like what was the last timestamp of update from GitHub. And so we tried to get some metrics around that, some logic around like um, when was it last updated? How much is it viewed? Um, those types of things to see if it was out of date. So just some more more crude, crude metrics that way. And, you know, if it's viewed a lot and out of date, then we should definitely update it. Um, so that's, that's all still pretty new though, and, and being worked out. Um, a lot of content is updated with the re release cycle because we've always worked really closely with engineering on the release cycle. So we make sure that, you know, when new features come out or updates come out, that, uh, the related content gets updated at that point, at least. So, you know, for when I was working with console, that was three to four times a year that the content was being reviewed to make sure that it was up to date. What about your role excites you the most? The teaching. So um, right now I'm delivering a technical writing workshop that I developed. And, you know, because of the pandemic and I moved into the a management role for a little while, I hadn't actually taught like instructor-led or created uh, an instructor-led deck or anything in almost two years. And so I've been able to start actually like teaching and not just teaching through writing. And that's been really enjoyable and a really fun process. Um, I'm going to, you know, so much so that I'm going to give the workshop uh, externally at a Hashi Talk soon and hopefully at our conferences. Um, so that's been really, really enjoyable because it's teaching something I'm passionate about, which is technical writing. Um, and also I've, I've, tended to just create technical content, like tech te technical um, education content. So this was the first time it was not geared strictly to technical. So that was a fun challenge in itself. But I also really enjoy learning our products. You know, as I've been to work with multi-products, I personally get to learn, you know, I'm learning more about Vault now and Terraform, and that's really enjoyable. And then, you know, helping our users learn those the same things that I just learned. So it's always it's always a fun cycle. Learning yourself and then teaching someone else. 
Um, I recently learned about learning models and approaches to teaching. Previously, it wasn't something that I knew much about, to be honest, um, and I'm by no means any expert in it at all. And I, I, someone taught me uh, from the education team actually about Bloom's taxonomy, and that changed the way I thought about um, articulating content and describing takeaways, even in my own workshops. Are there any learning models or approaches to teaching that you learned um, and that you found really useful as you educate others, whether it's technical content or other content? So yeah, Blooms is, is super neat. And I think it was my favorite uh, learning theory when I first got started. And our certification team relies on it heavily actually for making sure questions are at the appropriate level. So that's been fun to see that in action um, quite a lot on the team. And then uh, Bloom's taxonomy is really good for action verbs. So you can Google Bloom's verbs and um, find, you know, it'll suggest just different verbs at the different levels um, of learning. But then I've also really been enjoying looking through Malcolm Knowles' um, principles, six principles of adult learning and seeing how that works with educational content. So it's, it's things like, you know, adults want to be respected. It's like, yep, that, that makes sense. So how can we respect them? Well, let's not say things are easy or simple or, you know, things that, you know, they might seem easy or simple to us, but someone who's new and it's not, they don't, they don't really want to hear you say, oh, this is simple. Like, oh, why don't you get it? It's so simple. Um, so that's why we avoid that kind of language. And, um, you know, they want to use previous knowledge or, you know, they want to focus on the task or the goal. So it's all of these different concepts and principles that we try to adopt to our tutorials. So I think that's the one most lately I've been thinking about. Yeah, uh, like like Kate said, uh, Blooms is one that we definitely use quite a bit. It's uh, We actually also use it for when drafting exam questions to our certifications. Um, the different type of questions will either apply one of the bloom principles like remember or apply things like that so definitely look up those action verbs um, for me one of the learning principles that i really emphasized the past year and i'm trying to bring into here more is from a book called training from the back of the room and i use this technique quite a bit in the previous onboarding program i stood up uh, i was fortunate to have a very talented instructional uh, uh, this instructional designer on the team that really brought this book to light. But a lot of us are used to being in war classrooms where you might sometimes go through a deaf by PowerPoint, and those are the worst way to learn. And what this book uh, emphasizes, and it's it's a really good book. I really recommend anyone that's teaching professional to take a look at it. But it flips the teaching model upside down, meaning that you as an instructor spend the least amount of time talking and the student spends most of the time learning and taking ownership of the learning, meaning that you as an instructor maybe spend the first five minutes of class giving an overview, and then you assign different hands-on exercises or pair them up in a group. And this can be done remotely as well through you know breakout rooms and things like that. But it's just a better way to get people more engaged, take ownership of the, of the learning, because what they've figured out through science is that if you just lecture people majority of them are barely going to remember anything. And the only one that you're doing 
a benefit is maybe the instructor or whoever wanted that course to be taught to check a checkbox for governance purposes. But if you flip the model where you focus on the student and who's learning and really make them take ownership of it, the results will be much, much greater. And that book was very powerful in changing traditional enterprise learning. And it's something that I did in my previous gig. And it's things that are we're thinking of now, how can we apply it more? So if you look at our learn tutorials, one way that we try to get you engaged is by giving you hands-on labs so that you can follow along and do it yourself while reducing the overhead for you to get started with our products. And that's something we're going to continue to grow to help you learn and take ownership of your learning. Yeah, I think that's something personally I learned about myself and the way I learned as a, as a student for different kinds of things. I go to a lot of conferences uh, and some things sometimes with a fantastic speaker, you know, it will stick with you. But the ones that really stay with you and the ones that allow, at least for me, the ones that allow me to truly internalize are the ones that I got a code example to follow along and reverse engineer myself. Or whenever I read a blog, granted, I do want information, but I like engineers that talk about reverse engineering because that's how I internalize it. Uh, it's my personal, I guess, learning style. I'm curious, how do the two of you learn? Do you have a preference? Um, do you prefer write, you know, something that's written, something that's more visual, uh, something that is more uh, dialogue oriented? I like hands-on. So do the doing as much as possible. And that's another, like that's the task oriented principle from the adult learning theory. So if you want to like tie that in there a little bit. Um, so doing's the best for me. Um, I retain information the best. If there isn't anything hands-on, audio. So I, I listen to a lot of podcasts actually. Um, I don't, I don't like to watch videos so much, and I do. I really enjoy reading, but you know, it really kind of depends on whoever the author was whether I'm going to retain it because that's not all writing is the same. Um, so that, yeah. So, so typically hands-on is the most interesting. And if we want to think about that in terms of instructional design theories, there's the VAC model, which is visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. So kinesthetic, which is, I like to think of as preferences now. Um, the science hasn't really been there to show that they're, you know, someone actually learns in one way best, but people definitely prefer to learn one way or another. Um, and I think depends on the context as well of which style you're going to prefer in that time. But for me, generally, I rank it doing, listening, reading. Yeah, this is where uh, the whole topic of neuroplasticity gets so fascinating because everyone has a different way of learning. We won't go into that rabbit hole. But for me, Rosemary, it's interesting. If it's something technical, like Caitlin, hands on, give it to me, let me play with it. And then later on, I will read the tutorials and things like that, probably when I get stuck or I stop being stubborn and just go read the docs. Yeah, we, we all do it. But if it's something like cooking or fixing a plug-in in my house, then I want to watch someone do it first, YouTube, because uh, I don't trust myself. I don't have the same confidence in fixing stuff around the house like I do with technical stuff. So it's uh, yeah, it's just a good example how the learning changes based on the topic domain. We've talked a lot about learning individually. Um, but why is it important for any organization to invest in a team dedicated to education? 
you can do this for a lot of technical organizations who, who develop technology product often have education teams uh, or at least an education domain as part of their product. But why do it for any organization? That is a great question. And sometimes I help our sales engineers and salespeople with customer calls. And this is a question that comes up actually quite often. What I always share with them is that if you look at education as an expense rather than an investment, you're looking at it the wrong way. And it's very common to look at it as an expense rather than an investment. But the reason I say it's an investment is that you have to look at education as a risk mitigation tool. And the reason I choose the words risk mitigation is because every organization is at the end of the day trying to reduce risk and increase profits and market share, whatever you want. But by using education as a risk mitigation tool, you're able to reduce the risk of your employees doing something accidentally that might be bad for the company. Now, if we look at public cloud environments, the most common reason for cloud breaches that we see today is because of simple human mistakes. Yeah, there are proactive controls like Sentinel that you can apply to prevent that. You can also create reactive controls, event-driven solutions that will be triggered based off an action. But you're not always going to be able to catch all of those scenarios, no matter how talented you are. The best way to mitigate that risk is by educating people, teaching them what is the right thing to do. And if they have a question or aren't sure about something, where can they go and find resources for help? The other thing with an education program is that it's also, if you do it right, it's also going to give your workforce slash employees the confidence to navigate this world. All these technologies are evolving so rapidly. Just look at JavaScript, look at infrastructure. Every day there's a new announcement. But if you can focus on the core skills and the basics and give them a good foundation before they start entering the platform or tackling something new, it will set them up for success. And the last point I'll make about why education training is so important is, if again, we tie into public cloud, is that once organizations involve and start mastering these new technologies, cloud waste and cloud spend becomes a big topic. If you can teach people from day one the importance of optimizing their resources, cleaning up after themselves, how to use infrastructure as code to provision and deprovision, it will help reduce that expense to the organization. So an education program is a risk mitigation tool, but it's also going to help you save money. But again, you got to take an investment and do it right. That's just my two cents about why it's so important to organizations, especially now and moving forward. Yeah, I definitely, I like really second that. It's such a good proactive tool for helping your users succeed. Um, and I personally felt this really hard being on the back end of customers not succeeding in a support role, right? So just like the majority of the tickets I saw come in where someone didn't configure something right or, you know, couldn't figure out how to set up a puppet module. And it's just like, sometimes there'd be documentation or uh, learning content to link out to them. But, you know, once it was the, 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 the deed was done and they've misconfigured it and everything's gone down and everything's on fire, like they're not happy. We're not happy. And like, why not try to avoid those situations and like relieve everyone from that stress as much as possible. Um, yeah. So just it's, I really see it as a proactive tool as well. 
what is the difference between creating a structured education program um, versus sort of an honor system of having individuals report or self-motivate uh, for learning new things or, you know, acquiring new skill sets? So it's really important to do the curriculum development and, and understand some of those like instructional design best practices um, to ensure that our best intentions come out correctly. So a lot of the time, you know, if it's just tacked on as someone else's job or at the end of a project, you know, someone else is um, supposed to create a set of documentation or tutorials, um, they might try to go through it quickly and they might not have the most experience with that. Um, so it might not end up being useful for the end user, which is really unfortunate because everyone's then spent time on it. So having um, a team own it who has the dedicated time and experience to create uh, meaningful content is really important because it's not just, we don't just want content. It's got to be meaningful. It's got to help the user succeed in their goal. Um, so I, that's why I feel like it's really important. It is a unique skill set. You know, we've talked about the, our different backgrounds and what we've, we've done and um, anyone can, can gain the skills to be an education engineer if they have the in the interest and the passion, but you know that also takes time. What projects are the two of you working on that are interesting? They can be education related or not education related. They could be non tech related as well. At work, um, like I mentioned earlier, the technical writing workshop has been really an, an enjoyable project for me to work on, uh, and I'm going to offer that as much as possible <laughs> to people because I have enjoyed working on it, and teaching it so much trying to think um I recently moved into a new home and so I've been doing a lot of home stuff and right now I'm doing a lot of yard work and gardening so that's been like my personal fun projects and so I set up a raised bed and like filled it with all the raised bed soil and I'm gonna like plant a bunch of stuff and um actually read and I said I don't always read but I'm gonna read how to like care for my plants this time because I've been I've been very much hands-on like the doing hands-on with the plants like uh, a lot of trial and error so I've killed a lot of plants and this time I'm motivated to like just read how to keep keep them alive so I can have vegetables this summer that's awesome and uh, I would definitely encourage anyone to check out Caitlin's workshop you won't be disappointed and it's free so definitely check it out. Uh, uh, what am I working on? Let's see, at work, I'm spending a lot of time on redoing the console, getting started and thinking of better ways to teach it. I'm diving into some theater topics, creating a storyboard and story arc, which I've never ever done before, but it's interesting. It's, uh, it's new to me, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, and on my off time, you know, what I do for a living, I also enjoy doing. So I'm spending a lot of time with waypoints and I'm getting pretty close to releasing a uh, deployment pattern for Waypoint using uh, AWS EC2 network load balancers and a remote runners with an application load balancer. So I'm hoping to release that by the end of the month. Uh, but yeah, um, that's that's pretty much what I'm staying busy with right now. What are some tips or advice that you would give to someone who wants to get involved as an education engineer or someone who's working in education for a tech technology product or a technology? 
with just practice, practice a lot. So this is in my workshop where I, I, uh, I give a big reveal that uh, I was a terrible writer, like the worst writer. Uh, I, t- I was asked to take a technical writing workshop by my manager because my writing was so bad. Um, and then I just practice, practice, practice. And I would say I'm pretty okay at writing now. I feel pretty confident with my writing skills. Um, so yeah, don't let something like that stop you from trying because you know you're you level up your skills. Um, yeah, like Carl mentioned as well, like look at good examples of things you like. So you can look at learn, you can start to pick out the structure, how we structure things. We have like common headings, um, our voice and with our videos as well and our interactive, you can start to pick out how we how we've decided to teach people and you can learn from that. Uh, you can go read Digital Ocean has a million tutorials, but they all all have a bit of the same structure and any good good documentation site or learning site will have, you can pick up how they're teaching others from that as well. All right. We have one final question for both of you. This is as per HashiCast tradition, and it's a slightly less serious question. I acknowledge I debated on this a little bit uh, because it was going to be like a slightly more serious question compared to the less serious. Basically, I'm going to ask a very ridiculous and slightly irrelevant question. But on the other hand, authentic answers are much appreciated. If you were a dessert, which one would you be and why? Okay, I think I have my answer. I would be a chocolate ice cream cone. I'm beautiful, just enough to last a little bit. (laughs) And then when you have me, I'm delicious. I don't know why, but there's something about not being able to exist forever that just... I think sounds really neat. So I just don't want to be a piece of candy that's going to be around till like the year 2020, 2200 or something like that. I think that's the fastest someone has ever answered one of these questions. It was very profound, but usually people are like sitting there for a couple minutes uh, thinking carefully on this. That That's impressive. By the way, again, for the listeners who listen to HashiCast, we don't actually tell any of the guests the question. Uh, before we give it. So that was very impressive, Carl. (laughs) Maybe I just want ice cream. (laughs) Caitlin, what about you? Well, I think tiramisu. Tiramisu is one of my favorite desserts, and I like that it's complex. It's got a lot of little different things going on. You know, you got some delicious sponge cake, you got cream, you got rum, or I think it's soaked in rum, yeah. Um... Yeah, and it's just all sorts of different textures, and it's it's fun. Uh, I was going to go with creme brulee. I'm basically a creme brulee. I'm a little crunchy on the outside, but it's, like, a little transparent. So you can tell, like, I'm generally a, a, a decent, you know, a decently kind person uh, uh, under under the crackle and the, the weird layer of sugar on top. Now we all know either our favorite desserts, what we're thinking of consuming after this podcast, uh, and the, the very profound statement uh, of which dessert we want. <laughs> Great. On that note, all this learning about learning makes me want ice cream. If you're tuning in to HashiCasts and you're interested in education engineering, HashiCorp is always looking to add to the team. So check out our jobs page. Caitlin and Carl, it was great having you both on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. 
You've been listening to HashiCasts with your host, Rosemary Wong. Our guests this episode were Caitlin Carter and Carl Cardenas. Be sure to tune in next time.